0: What's up, guys? Today is Wednesday, September 23, 23rd, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it today. Um, on the show, on the podcast today, we'll get to, let's see, there is the Vitor Belfort news about his drug test prior to UFC 152 from a report from Josh Gross on Deadspin. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what just happened over the weekend, the Bellator Dynamite results from Liam McGeary to Tito Ortiz to Phil Davis to the ratings that came out yesterday that were uh, in a word, and this is being charitable, underwhelming. Uh, Then this weekend, a Bellator show on Friday night. You have Bellator 143. Then on Saturday, UFC Fight Night 75 with uh, Barnett and Nelson. So there's actually a fair amount going on in the sport this week, despite there not being a big, big show. Um, to talk about, so thank you for joining me. A uh, couple of favors and housekeeping notes, as we always do. Please give it a thumbs up. I know my knuckles are always just a show. Uh, here, this is bad. Well, that one's bad too. Yeah, they're all banged up, huh? Give it a thumbs up if you can. How about that? I would appreciate that. Um, that would be cool if you could share this video whenever you get it. Put it on Facebook. Put it on Twitter. Put it wherever you want, um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Thomas. You want to ask a question? You can do so. Hashtag chat wrappers. Uh, And then, of course, the best place to ask your question is on MMAfighting.com. Today's drink, of course, not officially brought to you by, but kind of brought to you by Diet Mountain Dew. I just had a cup of coffee, but you got to do the diet soda thing at this point. I'm kind of stuck with it. So um, I don't have any uh, exotic diet sodas to try, but I have this one, which is just the best one imaginable in terms of the regular to diet tasting the same. Diet Dr. Pepper, I feel like, is lesser. Coke Zero is good for mixed drinks. Like a Cuba Libre. But uh, Diet Mountain Dew gets the job done, does it not? All right. So, um, it's a wonderful day here in the nation's capital. I'm actually stuck in my house. Well, stuck's a maybe not right the, the right word, but pretty much stuck. Uh, the Pope is like three blocks from my house. Now, he's not here yet. He's across town, actually at a church next to my office, uh, St. Matthew's Cathedral. I'm not religious at all. I, I don't particularly care in that way, but uh, I can't park in the street. Traffic is blocked off. You can only walk up three blocks, and then you can't walk any further unless you have a ticket to go see the Pope when he speaks here later today. So it's a show around here, man. It's a disaster around here. Uh, I actually had to get like groceries yesterday. Because it's like a snow day, like everything's blocked off. It's hard to get anywhere. So, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that being over, so I can like get around places. And I have to go to New York tomorrow anyway. So, hope that this resolves itself by then. But it is good to be home. I was on the road for or on the road. I was on vacation for two weeks. Got back on a Monday at 3 a.m. and then turned around and went to San Jose at 3 p.m. the following day. So it's been it's been a little while since I've had a chance to sleep in my bed for consecutive nights but here we are back at it all right let's kick this off shall we luke do you know what time ufc 193 will be will it be prime time in the u.s well you can figure that out very easily you can go to ufc.com i do this all the time when i'm writing up stuff you can go to their schedule page and you can go to upcoming events which i'm going to do right now I'm going to pick UFC 193, and it will tell you when it starts. Oh, it says TBA. That's interesting. Uh, They haven't told us yet. Look, so what they've done historically in Australia is they've sort of gotten Australians used to, I think, Sunday morning UFC. It's done well for them there. Um, They seem to like it. Um, It hasn't commercially affected them in a negative way, and I don't think it interrupts their schedule or maybe Saturday morning, whatever it is. like morning. My dog's going crazy. It's like the morning time for Australians. So because it has not impacted business there, because it doesn't interfere with Australians wanting to watch, you know, footy or rugby, or whatever. I think other sports air at more conventional times for what we, what we are accustomed to putting on an MMA doesn't affect them. So they're happy to do that. And then they can put it on Saturday nights for us. So, um, so just keep that in mind. It'll probably be, I guess, Sunday over there and then Saturday for us. Let's see. Do you think they will break the highest gate as well? Well, I haven't heard that they sold out, but there was an article recently from an Australian publication saying that they were close to a sellout, that it was on path to break a bunch of records and and the like. Um, it might do really well. Uh, you know records. I don't know. It, it, it's on. It's on. It's on. to do extremely well, which is a testament to Ronda Rousey. I'm not sure that it would have done that with Condit versus Lawler. Maybe still be very successful, but match that, I don't know. And in terms of a pay per view prediction, which he's also asking here as well. I mean, look. Um, I don't know exactly because Brazil is away from here, right? But it's still in a relatively similar time zone. They're both in the Western hemisphere. So you can do live feeds of interviews and you can do that from Australia as well, but it's a lot more complicated. It's a lot further away. I wonder how much that will have an impact on sales. Um, so we'll see, right? Because it's one thing for Rousey to go out of the country, out of Canada, out of really North America. And sell. that's, that's impressive in its own right. But to then go around the world where it's a completely different clock, um, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. We're really going to have to find out. I, I'm willing to assume just because it's her, it's going to do extremely well. But, you know, one never knows, I suppose. Uh, and also, you can go to, uh, I'm being told you can go to MMAfighting.com slash schedule. And that will also give you everything you need about, you know, when fights are, where they are, how they're going to air, who's on the main card, who's on the prelim card, uh, when they start. So let's see for 193. I don't know if we have it up yet. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Fight paths prelims apparently start at 6.15 p.m. Undercard on Fox Sports 1 at 8. And then pay-per-view main card at 10. Yeah. So for if you're in North America, it'll be like normal. And if you're in Australia, I think it'll be on that Saturday morning. So there you go. MMAfighting.com slash schedule. Boom. Covered. Uh, thoughts on Nelson versus Barnett this weekend. I think it's being overshadowed by everything else that's been happening in the MMA world. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that and the fact that it's taking place across the globe. Um, that one really does feel more like for Japanese fans than it does um, you know, for us. I mean, they often made that argument like, well, these Fight Pass shows aren't for you. And then you would find out, well, that's really not true. It kind of is. Um, but in this particular case, it definitely feels like it caters much more to that native audience than us. Uh, And that, by the way, prelims start at 7.30, undercard on Fox Sports 2 at 8, and then Fox Sports Main at 10, which means I won't get over until like 7 in the goddamn morning. (laughs) All right. And my thoughts on it are, it's like, you know, it seems like a fun card, but it's not particularly, there's not a whole lot that's relevant about it. All right, Fedor not signing with the UFC. What do you think his opponent, or excuse me, who do you think his opponent will be? What do you think his next? What do you think of his decision to not sign with UFC or Bellator? And do you think he's just warming up for the big show? Plus, do you think his, this new Japanese org will crumble in the next year? Uh, I suspect they probably have enough money to go longer than a year. Um, if you listen to Josh Barnett on the MMA Hour, he had a certain amount of skepticism. Not like a ton of skepticism, but I think a healthy amount about the prospects of that show doing well. But we'll see. You never know. Certainly, I think it'll go longer than a year. You know, I don't think that Fedor is in it any longer than to get money and move on his way and, you know, lend his support as such for it. But um, I have been told, and I cannot say who it is, I can't even really hint at who it is, but I've been told a name about who he's going to fight on New Year's Eve. And all I can really say about it is if it's true, It's crazy. It's crazy. I can't verify it because it's just being kept under wraps. But the name I was told is not, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So we'll see if that's true. We'll see if it's not. I don't know what's going to happen, but keep that in mind. Um, What about his decision to go? So I was wrong about it too, because I thought he would sign with Bellator over UFC. It turns out he has done neither although he has sort of has a loose alliance with Bellator, I guess you could say at this point in time. Um, And a Barnett, I thought made a pretty good argument, you know, his popularity is huge in Japan, the way they're going to pay him, how much they're going to pay him, how he's going to be treated. These kinds of factors are just so overwhelming that even if the UFC made a generous offer, one that maybe even matched it monetarily, you know, the things that the Japanese and Sakaki Barra will do for him, the UFC just doesn't do for anybody. Maybe, um, unless you're a favorite son like conor mcgregor or something like that and even then who knows right so that to me seems like a very smart and compelling argument um it's just better for him over there and again the name that they brought up is just so crazy that i you know it'll if it's true it's mind-blowing all right um and i hate to tease you like that but i just can't say anything else about it because it's just it's so explosive so so that being said um Look, I was happy when he retired. You know, he went out looking rather poor. And he went out looking rather poor because maybe his heart wasn't in it. Maybe the athletic decline caught up to him. Maybe the game passed him by. And Lord knows I could not have been more wrong about Andre Arlovsky, which we have talked about on this chat and the MMA beat and everywhere else. And I am fine to admit that, you know, I just I just never saw it coming. Um, his, his career resurgence. So with that being known and being well-documented, um, who am I to say that he couldn't? Fedor couldn't have a similar resurgence. We've all seen photos of him looking um, more muscular as of late, and I and I guess if that's the way you want to think, I, I don't know that I can argue too much about it. Except to say I, I'm still always going to be skeptical of people who have gone out late in their 30s and are trying to come back, even even at heavyweight, which admittedly has you know space for more longevity. Um, to me, it feels like he's just got a different set of priorities than than the average fan. The average fan is like, here is a chance to finally answer some questions that have remained unanswered for a very long time. How would Fedor do against the UFC? The UFC's best, but to me, that's like a 2008 era question. You know, how would he do against Cain Velasquez? I don't suspect that well. At least not at 38 years old. Maybe at 28, it'd be a little bit different, but not at 38. You know. I just don't buy that this is like, I, again, could be totally wrong, but I just don't buy that this is a relevant debate anymore. The debate about how Fiddle would do against the UFC's best to me seems like a totally anachronistic debate. It's a debate from a completely different era in mixed martial arts that has no bearing on how things are going on today. Um, even if guys like Fabricio Verdum are kind of hanging on, and so is Andre Olovsky. And maybe again, there's room for debate. I'm not saying what I'm... I'm just giving you one perspective. You're more than welcome, of course, to have your own, especially if it differs from mine. But I'm just telling you how I like what seems right to me. And what seems right to me is like this debate about you know how would Fedor do against the UFC's best? I mean, you might do okay, you might do great, but chances are probably not all that awesome given how things are going and, and where he is in his life. And you know, for me, it's like you can judge a man's priorities based on his actions, and his priorities do not seem to be that he has unresolved issues in his career fans have unresolved issues about Fedor. I don't think Fedor has any unresolved issues about what he's done in the sport. And so if he's coming back because he's getting a giant payday or if he's coming back because he's getting a giant payday and he wants to do something for Japanese MMA, then those are his priorities. And I'm never really going to argue too much with a guy's priorities, especially when he's at the end of his career. I mean, if he was 28, I'd be like, okay, dude, this is your chance to make a mark on the sport. I guess if you talk to him, he feels like he made it, and this is all just gravy. So, if you're upset with the choice, I get it. If it's weird and disappointing to you, I get it. But like, if a guy just doesn't have the same priorities that you want him to have, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And if you want to say, "Oh, well, this taints his legacy," nah, yeah, does it? I mean, when he retired, that that was really his body of work. You know, again, after the, after Arlovsky changed everything. Uh, I, I suppose we have to amend that that argument a little bit or leave room for the possibility that he could come back and do amazing things, but I don't know. Part of me still finds it all very unlikely, and so for me, it's like, am I disappointed by it? I mean, I guess, you know, but not, not a whole bunch, but I recognize that there are a lot of people who are like, Jesus, man, you balked not once but twice. I, I, I understand your perspective. Someone said, is he fighting Arona? I can tell you that that is not the name I've heard. You might be right, but I'm telling you that's not what I was told. All right, so let's get into this a little bit. Uh, Luke, are Dana and Lorenzo, this is their question, not me talking. Are Dana and Lorenzo, are they really risking their whole brand because of Belfort? I'm having a hard time believing that. Okay, so I don't think that what's happened and what what he's referring to is the Vitor Belfort article by Deadspin by Josh Gross. You should read the article, and there's actually another article coming out um, on Bloody Elbow by uh, John Nash, which is a follow-up. and has some additional information that was not included in Gross's article. I actually read a preview of it um, today, and I don't want to tell you anything about it so I don't spoil his article, but I'll try to give some perspective here. So if you haven't read it, you need to. It's extremely important. It's as important as what's happened to Nick Diaz, if not more. Okay, Eh, I won't say more, but it's as important. It's as important. A couple of notes here. Number one, the UFC did not contribute any response to the the article, so we don't really know their perspective. I should also tell you, as a matter of disclosure, I have reached out to them for comment, um, and they never responded either. So there's a giant piece of the puzzle here that's missing, which is the UFC's perspective and their response to it and their set of facts and their information, which would have helped create a more complete picture, which I still think I'm assuming they've got to give at some point just because what's what's revealed here publicly is not a good look. Okay, so anything I'm going to say here, I'm going to be very careful about it because the, the implications are very serious. And without their side of the story, we don't really know what to make of all this. I mean, we can we can make some, I think, initial generalizations. We can make some conclusions. But again, it's an incomplete picture. They have one side of the story. We have a set of facts on the other. Um, which was done very well by Josh Gross, and then you'll see, uh, additionally, by John Nash. It's just not clear. It's not. There are some things that are clear. There are a lot that's not clear. Um, I'm not going to break down the whole story for you. I'm going to assume that it's read, but there are some questions about what it all means. I don't actually think that they're risking the whole brand as a consequence, because if you read the article, it's not clear. In fact, it seems pretty clear that no rule was actually broken. Right. So this is not. This is not exactly, um, you know, there are some, there are some complicating factors here, but it's the commission in Ontario didn't test or only tests at the behest of the promoter. Um, And so if the promoter is not pushing it, it doesn't matter. Um, So that's one of the first factor here. The second thing is he's still also within a normal range Uh, The very, very high end of a normal range. The extreme high end of a normal range. One that John Nash will point out to you later is so high that it could have and very easily would have stopped him from being granted the fight depending if it had taken place in Nevada or something. Um, But still within the normal range. Okay, so there's that as well. Um, I think that's a semi-exonerating factor. Not exonerating, but mitigating perhaps. Um, And the third factor is that... uh, well, those are the two main factors to consider. The thing that is serious, and it was brought, it was nothing that I ever realized. Uh, if you guys don't follow, and I've, if I am botching his last name, please forgive me. Um, Eric McGrocken, I believe is his name. Oh, I'm on, t- on Twitter. Eric McGrocken is an attorney who I think lives in Vancouver. He has a website called combatsportslaw.com. And he was, here's what it basically, he, he breaks it all down and says, what is the article alleging, and what does it mean? Here's what the article alleges. Again, we do not have the UFC's perspective here, but here's what the article alleges. Number one, Belfort was using testosterone. Number two, the UFC knew this. Number three, Belfort's levels were high at some point prior to the bout. Again, still within the normal range, but the extreme high end, so high that it could have disqualified him from competing. Uh, The Ontario Athletic Commission, who regulated UFC 152, deferred to the promoter on doping issues, And then lastly, the bout went ahead without Belfort's testosterone use being disclosed to Jones. That last part is the the serious one because here is what he says. And Jones, when reached by Gross in the article, says, I never knew that that Belfort was using at that point in time. So here is what McGrocken says. And again, we don't have the UFC side of the story here. But he says, quote, this is McGrocken talking, not me. If a fighter cheats through doping and harms their competitor, Legally consenting to fighting may not exist and the door is open to a law lawsuit based on assault. So like, for example, if you and I consent on paper to fight each other, there's a certain amount of information that has to be disclosed to make that consent binding. If I'm on PEDs and the promoter knows, and I'm not supposed to be, and you aren't told about that, the question is, did you really have, did you really consent to that? And if you didn't consent to that, um then it changes everything from informed consent to potential criminal charge. Four, did Belfort criminally assault John Jones? Now, I don't think Jones is going to do anything about it. And again, this is just one guy's perspective. Whether that would actually be true is not so clear. This is, this is McGrocken's analysis. But what he says is, if a fighter cheats through doping and harms their competitor, legal consent to fighting may not exist, and the door is open to a lawsuit based on assault. For a real-world example of pre-bout cheating, violating, or excuse me, vitiating consent, leading to a criminal assault, you can look at Collins versus Resto litigation. Um, He says also, this is him talking again, if an athletic commission fails to have adequate anti-doping measures in place, like Ontario, they can be exposed to civil liability as well. A real world example asked the British Boxing Board of Control about their inadequate safety measures costing them And he links to something uh, after that. Um, Let's see. Okay. And then he goes on and says more things. So that's the question there. Does Jones have any cause? Because Jones wasn't told about what was happening here. Perhaps according to some, uh, experts in analysis or who are offering analysis. I think the point being to me is not that the brand is at risk. This is not getting, again, it's not clear. They actually broke any rule. Maybe with this they did. Um, but again, that's just his perspective. We don't know if that's actually true or not. Um, but it's also worth reading, of course. I'm, re- I'm recommending that you read it. I think, to me, it's not about that. It's not about the brand being at risk. They've sort of moved on to USADA. I think that they, if you're someone who is applauding, um, you know, better anti-doping measures for all of USADA's faults, they've certainly moved in a, in, a, in a direction closer to that. I think, for me, that's not the issue. The issue is... Um, You know, look, this came on the heels of UFC 151, and this is all what people are alleging. I'm going to keep saying this because it's very important. We do not have the UFC's perspective. But, you know, on the heels of UFC 151, I talked about it on this chat previously. It was financially devastating for them, right, to have to cancel everything at the last minute. You know, they they were on lean times for a while after there about terms of travel budgets and what they were going to do and, and how much the company was going to spend on various projects and things like that. It, it affected them badly. This was the, this was the event that was supposed to make up for that, right? And Belfort was coming in as a late replacement, so so this was problematic. This was problematic, um, and the and the uh, the allegation I think that's being made, if you sort of read between the lines and pull things together, said on the heels of UFC 151 being canceled, 152 coming up, and having to have this event happen, you know, is the article alleging that UFC may have just said we're going to look the other way with this weird test result, even though it's kind of in the normal range to make sure this event goes forward. We're just not going to tell Jones. Um, that's what some I think are alleging. Um, to me, the big takeaway here is, is if this is true, and I can't put a bigger if on this than possible big if, because we still have to hear the UFC's perspective about this to me, it just sort of undercuts a lot of things about their priorities, about, you know, um, anti-doping. Not that I ever thought they were, like, super serious to begin with. Well, some some may have. But, you know, like, for example, right, like, there's partly this argument being floated, and some saying, well, only, only Ronda is floating and not UFC. I mean, they work hand-in-hand with this, right? They're both working in tandem, and I'm sure those are sharing talking points um, about Cyborg having to make 135. To me, the idea that she has to make 135, there's a lot of reasons why they say that. They say, well, you know, Ronda's the champion. Why does she have to go up? And we've made this argument before. That's what every champion does in combat sports. This is like this is like centuries of practice almost. Of certainly a number of decades uh, that we have seen this. So that's one reason why. But, the, the, but one that was offered recently, and I linked it on my Facebook page, was when, um, let me pull it up here real quickly, because I want to read you exactly what it says. This, to me, is sort of where, where things kind of gets undercut. Because you can say, well, they didn't do... The self-policing had a problem back in the day with TRT and and the uh, the very allowance of TRT created problems like this. And you'd be right about all of those things, right? Um, and, and maybe you could say they moved on since then, and that would be true too, you know? But here, this is the one to me that kind of... Uh, let's see. Let me find it. Oh, here we go. So... Cyborg was on ESPN recently, and she said the following. I'm trying to pull this up here. quote, Rousey has continued to harp on cyborg's failed test for steroids four years ago. She said again over the weekend that if cyborg can make 145 pumped full of performance enhancing drugs, then she should be able to make 135 without them. To me, this is a pretty clear, Example of just not being consistent across the board here. This is this is a hypocrisy, right? Because what you're doing is you're saying to reward a fighter with a title shot after a pass to performance enhancing drug use, they have to make we, they have to clear certain obstacles, obstacles that would ordinarily never exist, right? Um, people never really fought too hard about the idea of there being a catchway for GSP. And Anderson Silva it was just never the case I mean I think most have assumed it could take place at 185 but Anderson Silva was promising to go lower than that if necessary um, to me this is an, this is an example of that it's that it's that in this one case we can't reward this drug cheat with any kind of opportunity for a title shot and then here in the other case it's like we have someone who is clearly not using testosterone appropriately all experts say that as much and yet we're not really going to disclose it to his, his opponent allegedly, So the article alleges, um, because this event needs to go forward. Um, you know, so this like, this like high and mighty stance, it's not just about cyborg. I'm just talking about generally, this like high and mighty stance about, you know, some guys getting a pass and some guys not. I think it just sort of generally tells you if it's true, if big, if. You know, it just is a better look into the window of their actual priorities, at least historically speaking. And maybe they've made a pivot since then. You know, you can make your own determination about that. But no, I don't think it risks the brand. I don't think it's going to get, um, you know, massive exposure. And again, it's not even really clear that they broke any actual regulation only because there wasn't any actual oversight. Had this taken place in Nevada, I think the results would have been very, very different. But you know when you see Nick Diaz getting suspended, despite the fact the athletic commission knew that Anderson Silva had uh, a previously failed test um, heading into the bout and let him fight anyway. You know that's why I can't get too up in arms about um, not so much that people are cheating necessarily, but about the the guardians of the gate, um, athletic commissions or otherwise. You know they're everyone's got a set of priorities every in every case here that's intertwined with financial. Ruin or um, financial gain, and so when the two are intertwined, even at the commission level, there's it's always going to be weird. And I'm sure that there are people in in all these places, in state commissions like Nick Limbo and in the UFC like Mark Ratner, who desperately want to do the right thing. It's just not clear in all cases that's really ever going to happen, at least in enough cases or the right cases. So again, I don't think John Jones is going to do anything about it if, in fact, this is true. Um, but it's just a window into the prioritization of these kinds of things behind the scenes. I think no risk to the brand, and again, maybe they've pivoted since then, and it's no big deal. Like in the sense that going forward, you won't see any more of this. Um, but if John Jones had been like materially injured, had his career badly affected, and his arm has never been the same, which is kind of interesting. But if it has something really been bad to him, it's I, I think either UFC or the commission or both, potentially, according to Eric McGrocken, could have been. A, could be open to lawsuit, you know, um, because he didn't have informed consent about uh, this violent activity he was about to engage in. And many fighters would just be like, "Oh, you're on steroids anyway. You know, I'll fight you no matter what." Like BJ Penn, beer and hot dogs, that kind of thing, right? That that to me is is the larger issue here. It's it's just one of what are your actual priorities when it's all said and done. What do you really believe when it's all said and done? What are you really prepared to do? And again, this is if these things are true. We do not have the USC's perspective, and I'm only being very careful about that. Because it just, if, if in fact they're true, it makes them look really bad. Um, and it make, opens a question about how they've done this previously, and if so, to who else. Um, but, but it's not that they broke any actual law or even any state regulation. It's just that it really opens up the, it opens up a wider perspective about what do you really value when it comes to PED use as it affects your ability to do business? What do you really believe? And this creates a wider perspective about, about that, at least historically speaking. And again, you can make your own determination about what are the cases and what their values are and what their what their priorities are going forward. So that, to me, is the issue. I don't think there's going to be any investigation. I don't think their promoter's license is under any kind of um, peril, you know, especially not in Nevada. I mean, come on. Uh, and even in New Jersey, again, it's not clear that they broke any regulation that, I, that I'm aware of except for maybe that informed consent thing for John Jones. Um, It's just, to me, it just takes a step back and you can say, you know, how how much does this actually matter to you when the rubber meets the road in terms of your your ability to do business? Someone also asked me on Twitter, they're saying, um, you know, or is MMA media talking enough about this? Uh, I don't know. I'm talking about it. I've seen a lot of people talking about it. To me, it's an issue of, are the fans talking about it? I think that's, to me, the bigger question. It seems like, to me, the fans are like, oh, damn, well, that's sketchy. All right, what fights are happening this weekend? And I'm not blaming, if you're a fan and you feel that way, I'm not even, I'm not even like on, on top of you before. Again, I think our current, I think the move to USADA without fighter input and in creating a framework of regulations is unfair to them, and even if that means there's a little bit more PED use, I'm slightly okay with that, to be perfectly honest. Um, but um, to me, like this isn't getting nearly the amount of Nick Diaz attention. Probably because you know, we're uh, when a when a state commission does something so visibly in front of you that's so appalling, it's naturally going to get more attention. This happened at UFC 152. It's kind of old. Vitor's had this come up, and since then, um, you know, he's a known, uh, he's a it's well, a, a well documented PED user uh, in that state. And I think we all sort of look at the Nevada commission at this point. And like, you know, I mean, the regulation is not so thorough. Right. So, but, but yeah, that's my general perspective on it is it just gives you I think if it's true, if, if it's all true, it, it just tells you, uh, I think a lot more about their real priorities again, when the rubber meets the road, but I would really like to hear what the UFC has to say about it because that could change your perspective. It could make the conversation a little bit different, maybe a lot different. It could uh, help illuminate some things that are not clear to us. Um, it, it would just be helpful. It would just be helpful. Cause right now I'm not saying we're fumbling in the dark, but we're only working with one set of facts and it's a set of facts to which they've had no input. And so to me, I'm not saying that's unfair because Gross reached out to them apparently multiple times. I reached out to them. I got no comment. So like if they don't contribute, you don't have to stop. You have to go forward. You have to be thorough. You have to be fair. But just one wonders, you know, what do you have to say about it? It would be very helpful to have. All right. Uh, Someone asked a question basically following up on the exact same thing. All right, Rhonda has been received well down under. Records broken? Apparently, Rhonda has caused fan hysteria and been very well received in Australia. Do you see the, the two girls crying, uh, trying to meet her? Apparently, Rhonda has caused uh, blah, blah, blah. In your opinion, do you think that attendance record will be broken? I mentioned this before. Pro- probably so, but we'll see when it's all said and done. Uh, why is Rhonda such a crossover phenomenon? Uh, because she is a global superstar. She has transcended to a level of popularity that is unparalleled ever in mixed martial arts. Ever, um, I don't think there's been anyone as popular as her ever. I think I can. I think I can say that with a fair degree of confidence. Boxing gyms. Luke recently, one of my friends who's a pretty good amateur fighter went to join a boxing gym to work on his boxing skills. Okay. After about a week, they found out about his MMA background and immediately threw him out of the gym. Have you ever experienced anything like this from boxing gyms in your area? Absolutely. Absolutely. Boxing gyms, uh, not all of them, of course. You may find one that doesn't care. But they are, I would say, notorious for their anti-MMA attitudes. Notorious. Um, a lot of times you have to build a relationship with one trainer. A lot of times you have to convince them to just ignore it. But if they know you have any Thai boxing background, you know, which they know basically comes from a, an MMA gym or you know someone affiliated with an MMA gym, then they get angry about it because they don't respect Thai boxing very much. Um, if you say you came from an MMA gym and that's where you did boxing, they just sort of look at you like... They look at you like jiu-jitsu people look at people who come from Krav Maga only worse. They have no respect for you. Um, it's kind of like that. Even though you may actually have some skills or you're just trying to learn. You may even realize, you know what? I don't have the right skills. Like this guy, I'm trying to improve. I, I encountered it personally. A guy was asking me when I, used to, I went to a boxing gym here for a little while... Uh, I didn't stick it out because the guy, well, there was just not a lot of opportunity there for growth. I'll put it that way. Um, and, uh, he was like, do you have any boxing background? I was like I have a little bit of Thai boxing. I trained Thai boxing at that point for about a year. And, uh, you know, I have a little bit, that's not, it's not very much. That's a tiny amount. And he was like, Oh my God, where did you learn? I was telling him, he was like, you know, he's like, Oh my God, we're just going to start from scratch. You don't know anything. This is, I can't believe I'm wasting my time. You said that to my face, you know? It's like, well, that's why I'm here, stupid, to get better. So either you wanna teach me and you wanna take my money or you don't. You know, and how is what I'm showing you any worse than someone coming in off the street and knowing nothing? I'm just trying to learn. You get a lot of that, man. You get a lot of that all over the place. Maybe less so than you used to. But you know, you gotta remember boxing is filled, like boxing is old. If you go to a boxing event, the journalists are old. <laughs> I mean, there's you know, um, there's examples of that not being true, of course. There's a lot of younger guys that also cover it as well, but there's a lot of gray hair journalists in boxing. Not nearly as many in MMA. Virtually none, relatively speaking. So MMA is a little bit younger. It's a little bit. It's a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit wider, obviously. So there's also you know, like MMA is a bit of a suburban sport in some ways. Obviously, that's changing too. But historically speaking, that's been the case. Um, historically speaking, boxing has been, at least in many cities, uh, an inner-city phenomenon. So there's the, you know there's the, there's 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 a wealth gap in some cases. There's a racial gap in some cases. Um, and then there's this culture gap. And when you mix all three, you know you get you get a lot of bad attitudes. Uh, at least f- sometimes from both sides, but definitely from the boxing side. I see something on Twitter here. All right, GSP not coming back. Dana says GSP will likely never fight again. Who's been telling you that? Boop. If he doesn't, what do you feel about his legacy should be? Greatest welterweight ever. Easy. And one of the top top three, top five best fighters ever. Can you discern how much an influence he had on the techniques of fighters today? Um. That's an interesting question. Certainly, he promoted a sense of well-roundedness. He gave, I think, cause for people to realize that you don't have to come from one background to be able to use it effectively in MMA, even against people who came from that background. right? Didn't wrestle, and yet could out-wrestle in MMA other wrestlers. Um, I think that gave cause for people to be able to pursue things to the highest technical level imaginable or at least it broadened their horizons and, and their perspective about what was actually possible in terms of technical development. Um, and, you know, certainly gave a, a good face to the sport, and an athletic one, and a one that was marketable, I think, as well. Technically, though, I think the idea was that he just raised the bar about what was possible, what happened when things were mixed, and then you can get good in something even better than those who come from that background, at least in MMA contexts, you know, given certain pieces of uh, functional development. Matt Mitrione, why are the UFC not giving him a fight? He's an entertaining heavyweight and is not injured. He's been banging on wanting a fight for months, but nothing. I thought he said on Twitter that uh, uh, he was getting one. And someone says, I hear he wants to fight out his contract, and they are trying to stall him. If you listen to the most recent episode of the co Event podcast, they talk about this. They said that those those guys have been told that if you're – you know, if you want to fight out your contract, if you don't want to renegotiate, that they the UFC will wait as long as they contractually can to give you fights. Um, now, again, I would like to hear what the UFC's perspective on this is, but that was sort of suggested on the podcast, and it seems true, or at least, you know, I haven't measured it, but that sounds about right. Um, you know, it's hardball, right? That's what they play. All right, Mr. Wonderful is liberated. Now that Phil Davis has had an excellent debut in Bellator and been freed from the negative appeal he had stuck to him in UFC, do you think he will be champion? I think he's going to handle Liam McGeary if he's careful. McGeary guy has got this reputation as a guard player, and that's true, but that's only because in the last couple of fights everyone has taken him down. People forget that he'll spark you up on the feet. Um, he's actually really good, really strong in the clinch. He's taller than me, so when he brings his knees up, I mean, he doesn't have to go very far. For his own body, and he can still travel a lot of distance with a lot of force. Uh, he's excellent there. So he's got a good jab. He got actually nailed a couple times against Tito, but I think it was because he had his weight so far forward to get his legs and hips behind him. And I talked about that in the Monday Morning Analyst. But I just think when it comes BJJ to BJJ, Phil Davis is not going to make the same mistakes that Tito Ortiz is. He's going to pass. and He's going to lock up something, especially a guy with long arms like McGear. I think he's going to lose. So the question is, you know, what, what happens to Phil Davis after that? I think he will be champion. How long he'll hold on to it? You know, we'll see what kind of matchups they give him. I actually think Kim Mo is an interesting matchup. And you can say, well, you know, you know how would Mo match up with Phil? You know, Mo couldn't do much against Emmanuel Newton, and Phil could. But I think that this is a better version of Mo now. I think Mo's wrestling would actually give Phil a lot of problems. And so I think a lot of that fight would be contested on the feet. And then you have to ask yourself, who's better there? So to me, that's actually a very interesting matchup for him as well. But like the thing for me is, you know, people are like, well, he looks better because he's fighting lesser competition. Yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe he's not meant to be one of those UFC guys who just tries to be top five forever. Maybe it's better for him that he can wear his affliction and pink shorts and um he can be the best guy a big fish in a small pond people always have like being a big fish in a small pond is the worst thing ever like you see in media all the time too like if you're a media guy and you want to be a big time celebrity where do you want to be you want to be on a national nfl network right you want to be on espn you want to have a, you want to be scott van pelt you want to be you know i don't know if you want to be colin coward but you get the idea you want to be on the scale anyway of colin coward yeah and some people that's just not the best fit for them some people can like stay in a local market make a ton of money here um you know, maybe they it, and you know when I say local market, we're still talking about you know top ten markets, right? You guys remember Craig Carton from uh, MMA Censored Live? He doesn't have a national radio show, although he has a big one, um, and he has one of national significance. But and he's on CBS Sports Network; his show is air there. But like, here's a guy who basically before that was big in in the, in the number one media market, but didn't have wasn't on a national show. It wasn't like Scott Van Pelt. This that dude is. That dude has the same agent as Jon Stewart. Yes, the Jon Stewart. You know what I mean? Like, he's just caked up with clout to borrow from Slim Thug. Like, there's a lot of value to that. Like, you don't always have to be in the on, on the biggest spotlight and have the biggest contract. You can have a really big one, have a really successful career and a really great life and not be up there. And I think Phil Davis, I'm not saying, you know, fighters always struggle with this. I need to read the writing on the wall. I need to have a healthy realization of what was really possible and yet still be able to lie to myself to compete at the highest level. We've talked about how fighters are liars in a good way, mostly to propel themselves to greatness. And that's tough to do. I think most hang on to the delusion about a championship belt way too long. I think Bellator would be a good fit for a lot of guys that just, you know, are never really going to get there. You know, if you're a Habib Nurmagomedov, you, you need to be in the UFC because you have a chance to be something special. Same with Donald Cerrone. I think, you know, as he continues to improve, there's a lot of opportunity for him there as well. So, like, those kinds of guys, you know, you, you don't want to see them squander greatness, Um, and certainly Phil Davis has a a, a significant degree of greatness, but, um, you know, maybe it wasn't just going to go for him there. Maybe he was just never going to be that guy. And so if that's the case, why continue to be in a place where you're not going to be as appreciated as you are somewhere else, especially if you can make as much or more money in your particular circumstance, that's the Phil Davis circumstance is not everybody's circumstance. I think, you know. I think we can all agree, you're, you know, if you're a high-level fighter, your chances of making more money and you you're probably pretty great. But not in Phil Davis's case. I suspect he's making more, given the amount of sponsorships and everything else he's got in Bellator. And more of that, I think he's still technically developing. Like, you know, it's one thing to say, well, he's fighting lesser guys so he can show more tricks, and that's true. Um, but I also think he's still getting better. And the other part about it is, like, you know, so what if he's fighting easier guys and he looks better? Like, if he's happier and you're getting a more entertaining guy and you're getting a guy who just kind of recognizes, you know, Maybe that wasn't going to work out for me there, but maybe I can be i can be a different Phil Davis here. I can change the way people remember me in a better way as I go on. And, you know, a lot of MMA and a lot of combat sports, I'm not saying it's smoke and mirrors, but it's a little bit of sleight of hand. You know, getting a guy a tune-up fight makes him look great. It changes your perspective about, about him. We saw that with Michael Chandler in his last fight. People are like, okay, Chandler's back on the winning track. Let's see if he can get back to old form. And sometimes... It's not just an image thing. Sometimes it actually does boost your ego. Sometimes it does restore confidence. Sometimes it does make you feel better about who you are. And as a consequence, you can go on to do better things. You know, Phil Davis is probably feeling like, you know what? This is a better version of me. I can show more of my skills. And maybe he can show more of those skills because someone's not putting up as much defense on him. But, like, are you really going to miss him in the UFC? No. You're going to like him better in Bellator. So, I, I, you know, I just don't see what the big deal is about it. And, and and speaking of old debates, I keep hearing people being like, well, this proves that the UFC has a better roster. Mother effers, who is confused about this? <laughs> who is out there thinking, well, I I just don't know if if UFC has a better roster. Let, let's see how Phil Davis does in, in, in Bellator. That, that'll really settle it. Hey, everyone, we know UFC has a better roster all the way up and all the way down. There might be a couple guys here or there you can look to that say they could compete in UFC. Phil Davis can compete in UFC. Maybe not the very, 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 very highest level, but pretty damn high. Okay. Will Brooks, I bet he could go up there and do some amazing things. And you can point to a couple other guys as well. Okay. This is, this is what I'm talking about. This is a 2006-era debate where you're substituting in Bellator for Pride, where you're substituting in Bellator for IFL. The debate is over. The UFC has the best roster, period. We're always asking, well, which one has the better fighters? Why Why are we having this debate? This is a this is a nonsensical old debate that no longer has relevance to modern mixed martial arts. And maybe if Bellator changes significantly, significantly in the next two to three to four to five years, we can revisit the debate. For now, there is no debate. It's not a debate. But that doesn't mean there's not value to Bellator. That doesn't mean there's not things to enjoy about Bellator. That doesn't mean Bellator doesn't have the right to put itself You know, they have to earn your dollars, and they have to earn viewers, but they don't have the right to pursue things on a national scale. But this debate about, well, I mean, Phil Davis going over there just proves the UFC has a better roster. Fool, what are you talking about? It was already true. Davis having success against Emmanuel Newton and Francis Carmont does not make that any more or less true. The debate's over. This is you beating a dead horse. Not you asking the question, but, like, you donks. So, like, let's, let's stop it. We know Bellator doesn't have a better roster or even a close to having a, as good of a roster. That's why they're having ramps and fireworks and cages and rings all together because they're trying to do things differently. They have to. That fact that they have those things tells you they don't have as good of a roster. So does your brain, provided it works properly. So being able to be like, well, Phil Davis we changes the, the debate's over. And moreover, they signed him because they want him to win. They're promoting him because they want him to win. Didn't work out over there. It'll work out over here. And they can make him something new and better. Like, you can't look at me and say, Phil Davis wasn't entered. You can't, you cannot look at me and say, Phil Davis wasn't entertaining on Saturday. Yes, he was. It was great to watch him do that. And I talked about my Monday morning analyst. To be able to pin another light heavyweight so well that you have free use of both hands is bonkers. Bonkers, and maybe you can't do that against Ryan Bader because he can scramble so well. Okay, but that fight wasn't all that great. <laughs> wasn't all that great. It was a lot more fun, for what that's worth, to watch him do that against Emmanuel Newton. It was a lot more fun. You want to have your UFC up top where they have the best fights and the best fighters. That that's got to be your priority, no doubt about it. But it doesn't mean you can't compliment things, even if it's a lesser or or twisted version of what you're accustomed to. But we can stop this debate about, Phil Davis proved she had no, Like, No, 2007 proved that. Why are we having this debate seven, eight years later? It's over. Uh, kind of already answered this one about the cyborg attacks Rousey. Someone's like, you know, are you are you misleading people with the uh, title article? No, because she's talking about the very article that I referenced. So I'll include it in the links of the comments here. Good question. Glad you asked this. Bellator ratings apparently flopped big time. I don't think that's quite accurate. The number was not bad, but the number was bad relative to expectations. I would call them very mediocre. Very mediocre. And really the first big miss of Scott Coker's push into Bellator, if you ask me. No one's going to be perfect. No one's going to get it right every time. Um, I'm not saying at the live event it was a it was a miss, depending on your perspective. Because I had my own issues, but you know, I think many of the fans in attendance enjoyed it. But from a ratings perspective, it was a big-time miss. That being said, it can't be good to have Tito McGeary only getting 800000 Considering their past events have done more, even a rerun of Cops beat them out. Well, Cops beat a lot of things out. If you look at their ratings, actually, Uh, I don't see Viacom keeping them around that long if they're going to continue to get these bad ratings. Well, okay, they're not continuing to get bad ratings. The Kimbo Slice event set ratings records for them, so they're not. This is not a continuation of things. This is actually an aberrant performance. Number one. Number two. Let's break down some of the reasons why that event did poorly on ratings. Yeah. Here's what I think. What I think is, number one, Tito versus Bonner is, you know, you can say what you want about the fight, but in terms of name value, it's a high degree of visibility. Stefan Bonner, right? Tito Ortiz. I know this. Let's check this out for nostalgia's sake. That's partly one reason why it did well, I think. Because that event took place, I think I want to say in a November, but certainly on a Saturday night. But that being said, I also think that Saturday night was a problem. Not just because the Bama Old Miss Game did about eight million people, but that you had this whole push around Friday night fight, Friday night lights out, Friday Friday night, Friday night, Friday night. And I'm not saying you can't move away from Friday night if you had the right event, and maybe they thought they did. But to me, Kimbo Slice went on Friday night. I covered that fight too. And that event did really well. I think what it peaked at like 2.4, 2.5 million, you know? That event did really, really, really well for them. So um, so me, if I'm thinking about it, if I'm Bellator, I'm not putting the cart before the horse. I'm gonna say we still have a lot to do. We can't really compete with college football, at least big time college football on Saturday night. Let's stick to Friday night. We're promoting that as a block for fans to watch anyway. For example, the next Bell Tour event is on Friday night, although it's a small scale regular Bell Tour event. So, for me, that was another problem. I've been told by some people that this was the first time that they aired on ESPN Deportes, which means that, that Spanish speaking customers could more, more easily find and watch in high definition um, their product. I'm sure, I'm, I don't think that had a dramatic effect, but that probably didn't help. Um, so, you have the star power issue with Tito Ortiz only having himself really promoting it. Um, didn't have like another foil to bounce the name off of, although Frank Shamrock probably would have helped. Um, you had the, the weird time slot you had, maybe the move to a different Spanish television station. Um, there's a lot of factors I think that, that went into, to, to why it didn't do so well. Um, I also feel like, can you put kickboxing on there? Yes. And to us, it was like, oh, am I more interested now that there's an interesting twist into this? It's not just a single MMA event. But if you're a casual fan, why do you care about that? Why do you care about Zach Mikasa? Why do you care about Sal Cavallari? You don't. You might care about Kimbo Slice kickboxing in an event, and that's not what Glory fans want to hear. Believe me, I understand it. But I'm just saying what moves the needle is like, oh, Kimbo Slice is going to fight on this card. There's name visibility, and he's going to fight in a kickboxing bout. Well, I have to see this, right? that to me would have been better for a ratings grab than something else. So I think that was a problem too, you know? And I also think like the event was way too long, like getting Carrie Ann Taylor Melendez. I, I I get that they, she's a very nice person. Um, and I met Gilbert Melendez and his father and they're very nice people as well. But you know, the fight was bizarre. It was just a setup fight, which I understand, but it, it didn't need to be on the main card. They wanted to put her on there because they wanted to put her on TV so that they can leverage that for her eventual bull Tour debut in 2016. Fine, I get it. But it, it didn't work, right? Paul Daly versus Fernando Gonzalez. It was like, oh, let's have Paul Daly, a legit glory level fighter. Competing in Glory against a guy who's not a good kickboxer but is very durable. And then you had those kickboxing gloves that I think were 12 ounces when they were supposed to be 10. My god, they could completely cover themselves. You could parry very easily off the shots. It just made any kind of offense really hard to come by. Blocking was much easier now. I'm telling you man, I've been to a bunch of Glory events. I used to work for them. I'm not on their payroll. I am happy to tell you that that is not how glory events look, man. They're just not, they, they do not look that way. They are action, 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 action. And the referee and the cello Cavallari, Zach Minkasa about sucked. Sorry. It's not a tie contest. You're not even allowed two-handed clinching in in glory. You're allowed to one-handed clinching, one strike, and you got to let go. Moreover, you're not allowed to sweep. That should, be a, that should be fine. I didn't mind them taking a point, but I, I, they should have given him a warning. But then after that warning... He should have had a bunch of points taken away. Glory bouts are designed to go like this. It's a three-minute round. It's fast. And since you can't clinch, you got to be all the time striking. And you just saw none of that. So, like, that didn't work. And and really, that should have been Gokhan Saki fighting Salah like Cavallari anyway. You know, so there was just, in retro, like, at the time, I just, I don't know. I wasn't thinking too much about it. I was like, well, they did well with Kimbo Slice and, you know, MMA events have gone up against college football and done well before, and I don't think it'll be match Kimbo Slice, but hey, Tito's in the main event. Turned out you, you need a couple of big names for a Bellator event to do well, especially on Saturday night, and they should probably go back to Friday night. Uh, Bang versus Faber. Thoughts on the whole Faber-Bang fiasco and the serious allegations Faber laid out in the MMA hour. It seemed to me Bang didn't deny Faber's claims in his response, but rather agreed to most of what Faber said. That was my take as well. If you listen to, first of all, I, I remember meeting your Faber back in like 06. And um, all I mean to say is that doesn't mean anything, but every time I've talked to him, I've found him to be a very honest broker of the truth. Right. And a, and a generally level-headed guy. He's, he's a smart level-headed guy. He was a college educated guy um, who has managed to open up a team and develop a business. And you can say, well, TJ Dillashaw is the first guy to win a world title. And it was the help of Bane Ludwig. And I wouldn't tell you you're wrong but like, just think about what you're saying. Like, Uriah Faber is a very successful guy, in managing his own career, and by the way, being a previous world title holder, in starting up a gym and starting up a business, and in enabling his teammates to also start up their own other businesses. Like, he's a smart, successful guy. You know, he's he's had a great life. He's had a great career. Like, he has a lot to be proud about. And so does Ludwig too. Although, if you listen to Faber and the com- the, the claims he's made about Ludwig's inability to manage his own affairs, those are some serious charges, but I guess in reading Ludwig's reply, I was just like, there's not a lot here, you're not really denying much, Um, not a whole lot of denial of the racial stuff, if any, not much denial of the women's stuff, now some of the claims about money, um, it's a lot of he said, she said, but like, I guess your sense is the same as mine, that when you listen to Faber, he sounds that sounds like he's telling the truth, doesn't it? Like, um, you know, we don't have a lot of hard evidence, but it feels right. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it doesn't look good for Dwayne. I'll put it that way. And there's just a instances people pointed out, like, you know, a uh, Ludwig snapping back at Joe Rogan on his own podcast about wearing his opponents, like, whatever guy he's cornering, wearing the opponent's t-shirt just being weird like that. Bizarre demands for money. It's going to be interesting to see what TJ Dillashaw does, right? Because I saw some people being like, oh, Faber's just mad because it wasn't until Dwayne came along that they crossed the threshold. It was like, if you get anything out of listening to Uriah Faber, number one, he never really denies that Dwayne doesn't have wisdom to share. What he denied was that Dwayne, from a business perspective, upheld his end of the bargain, or that he was able... to to be, you know, an effective business partner and working together. He wasn't there or he was demanding more money or he was acting erratically. It wasn't that he didn't understand striking. He never actually says that. Moreover, if you look at a guy like Uriah Faber and you realize how confident he is and how much self-belief he has and understanding of the business world, they want someone to come in and make them all champions. That's what they hired Dwayne to do. That's what they want Martin Kampman to help with to, and not just to run daily practices, but like, let's elevate this. Let's get to they're competitive, confident guys. He's not mad about people getting world titles. He's mad about people being impossible to work with. At least that's what it sounds like. Uh, no one is ever making any claims about what Ludwig knows about MMA or knows about striking. What they're making claims about is his inability to be an effective partner or coach as it relates to, being reliable and consistent and upholding agreements and just being part of a system. Uh, it's not that like Dwayne has never learned anything about striking and has no wisdom in that respect to impart. So to me, it's like the idea like, well, Faber's mad about that. I doubt that. I think what he's, they want to have their skills improved. They just don't want to deal with someone they feel like is a lunatic. Um, Are you surprised by the lower numbers than Bellator Dynamite? Yes, I am. But I just sort of mentioned it. So, okay, good question. Let's see. Luke, what kind of grade would you give Scott Coker so far? Nothing has really changed for Bellator outside of no more tourney format and the Freak Show fights that are supposed to bring exposure to main card fighters. Clearly with the latest show being a bust in the ratings, the casual fan drawn in by the Freak Show are not sticking around for regular shows and are not even always coming back for the tentpole shows. How can Scott Coker be considered anything but a failure up to this point? Well, that is an insane question, and I'm going to bring this up first because I think Vegas Ford, who was asking this question, I think you're a smart person, so I just think you have a really bad perspective on this particular issue. I just want to make that point now. Scott Coker is an unequivocal success for Bellator. Now, that does not mean everything he has done has been successful, but what that means is, is he making things move in the right direction? Is he, um, is he the appropriate change that they needed? Is he the correct guy for long-term growth? Uh, and even in the short run, has he made the kind of contributions and changes that have enabled them to be um, not just on a path to success, but having also individual successes along the way? And to all those questions, the answer is yes. To all of them. Look, I've got some problems with the way some of the business that Scott Coker has done. I, and I am and I, kicking myself for not asking him this. And you could you can say, I failed in, in not doing this and you'd be right. Cannot believe I didn't ask him why they're still continuing to book Melvin Manoff. To me, that's just, that's just, just totally unethical. And you could say, well, he gets a commission license. Okay. <laughs> that's the lowest common denominator of regulation. That doesn't mean anything. So like, I have a problem with that. Um, that to me does not feel very good. But like, generally speaking, there's a lot, go to a tour show is all I can tell you. Just go. I was at the Bellator show. I went to two, two or three shows under the Rebney era and now the Scott Coker era. It is completely different. Completely different. First of all, the Spike executives have a, I mean, a giant pep in their step. They are significantly happier. They sold out all the ad inventory for the Dynamite show. Now That might actually come back to cost them because they probably sold it at an ad rate that was relative to different expectations about what kind of ratings they were going to get. But nevertheless, they are extremely pleased. With Scott Coker. Moreover, Rome was not built in a day. It takes a long time to transition from what he had into what they want to build it. This this was their first show in San Jose. They're trying to reclaim San Jose as the new home of Bellator. He is at the very, very nascent stages of what he is building there. And already they've set attendance records, revenue records, and ratings records under his watch in a year. That is a success. That is a total, complete success. Have there been uh, misfires? Sure. Um, booking Manhoff continuously is driving me crazy. Uh, they totally didn't expect this ratings to be what they were, and they kind of they kind of messed that up a little bit as well. Um, and I'm sure you can point out other things as well that the standard show does not do particularly well either. Uh, these are all things that I have no problems, and you should have no problems admitting or pointing out. And maybe there's something else I'm not even thinking of at the very moment, right? But but the point being is. If you're if you're Spike and you're Viacom and you're looking at pre-rebney and you're looking at post-rebney, all the milestones were set post-rebney, except for just the milestone of like first show on Bellator or you know um, first time headlining in this state or something like that. Revenue, ratings, and attendance all set under Scott Coker. You know all of them. So that to me is a fairly substantial upgrade. Moreover, if you look at Scott Coker, look at some of the long term projects you have going. You got Aaron Pico in the pipeline. You've reconnected Zinkin Entertainment through Scott Coker um, to to uh, Bellator, which means Aaron Pico, and now you have Ed Ruth, and they have got some other kid they just signed very recently. Um, moreover, you're going to get the, the the rights to Fedor because Scott Coker has a previous relationship with them that that Revney could never have secured for them. And they don't they're not on the hook for that. They're not they're not I asked them, are you contributing production costs to the Sakaki Bara show over there? They're like only for like our broadcast team and stuff like that. Like that's their show. And they'll provide guidance to the extent that they're asked. So they're not on the hook for the Fedor purse, they're not on the hook for the production of the show and they're gonna get the 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 TV rights for it. I mean he's doing so many things. And then of course securing a pipeline into the UK, they're gonna get that fixed over there as well. Like you're welcome to point out all of the things that went wrong with Dynamite. You're welcome to point out the fact that Melvin Manhoff should never be fighting for Bellator. I can't believe that he continues to do that. And you can point out any number of other flaws that they're making that allow their online content. is just totally a waste of time or what, whatever, whatever you want to point out. But to say he's a failure, no, <laughs> especially not relative to Bjorn Rebny. He is an unequivocal winner compared to that. And I, people, are, people are just trying to measure, for example, average viewership under Rebney versus under Coker. I think it's a very crude measurement, if we're being honest. It's an important one, and I think it has some value, but I think you need to look a little bit closer about what Coker is trying to turn the product into. The old shows, he still has to do because he can't get rid of them. They are still cost efficient to an extent. They're still filling out some deals that Rebney signed, and they still have to go to some of these places. So in some senses, he's actually still stuck. Um, but to me, it's 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 about what are the high-water marks that he keeps hitting and why is he hitting them? And it's because of his choices, his innovation, and his signings from his tenure and his connections. People, like, it's amazing when you go work for Scott Coker or in, in the sense of, like, you talk to fighters and they, like, they want to do things for him. And I feel like in a lot of other MMA spaces, people feel like, you know, there are some... It's much easier to find a Scott Coker company man than it is, I think, in other MMA organizations because people just like, fighters just like love him. Um, and I'm not sure why because I've never worked with him in that capacity. Certainly he's, you know, friendly enough to, to, to grant me interviews. But um, I just think if you're if you're thinking, well, the ratings are, you know, up but not like substantially different. Well, they can't be. It, 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 they They have to work with what they've got and they have to slowly add to it and then replace that out. And man, that takes time. And in the meantime, in a year, he set ratings records, revenue records, and attendance records. Uh, yeah. And by the way, you know who was there? Um, the Latin American guys from Fox Sports. They were telling me, unless you have UFC Network in Mexico, and I don't know this to be true, they were saying if you only have Televisa, you don't get to watch live UFC events. You get them a week later, like they do in the UK for Bellator. You had to get the UFC Network to do it. Now, I guess that's very, very cheap to get, but still. Um and that Bellator is the one that's on like all the free channels. Now I i don't know if that's true. Sure. I mean, or to what extent that—I that, mean, these are these are the guys selling the own impact of their network. You got to have a, you know, a healthy perspective about that. But nevertheless, all right. Uh, someone's asking top prospect Tom Dukinois. Uh Look at Bama last weekend. Tom Duquesnoy defended his featherweight title. This Frenchman is super impressive. Even if his last performance wasn't his best, he's been fighting as an undersized featherweight and is moving to 135. Anyway. He's been touted as the number one prospect out of Europe and is apparently in talks with the UFC. Have you seen anything from him? And if so, what are your thoughts? you got to see this kid, Tom Duquenois. It's spelled D-U-Q U-E-S-N-O-Y. Tom Duquenois is I mean, phenomenal. Super athletic. Phenomenal striker. Um, Got a little bit of work to do in his wrestling and his scrambling. Like all Europeans and, and I guess especially Frenchmen do, but nevertheless, is quite a talent. You could see him right away. Got a very fan-friendly style, heavy puncher, dynamic combination striker. There's a lot to like about Tom Duke and Walt. And frankly, I'm kind of surprised that he hasn't been signed yet, given that there's a lot of other guys they've signed who aren't nearly as talented as he is. Um, let's see. Someone's asking about McGeary versus Davis. Kind of already talked about that a little bit. Here we go. Pardon me, Glory gloves. You touched on this on the uh, on the Monday morning analyst about the big Glory gloves not being conducive to action when the big men fought. I actually noticed it more in the women's fight where one glove was bigger than their head. My question is: Should Glory use smaller gloves, and should they consider using even smaller gloves for the women due to the smaller frames? So they just signed this big deal with Hayabusa, and look, I own Hayabusa gear. I don't own any their gloves, but you know, rash guards and. Um, I want they have a Bouchesha Gi, which I'm sure is amazing. Um they make good stuff. They make great stuff. This is not an issue of quality. I want to make that very clear. The question is, as they change from the Leone gloves to the Hayabusa gloves, do they also go up in size a little bit, or are they made differently that there's a certain width about them? Because what you often see in glory, guys would still have guards up and someone would fire a shot, they would rotate their fist out and fire a shot, you know, lean off the center line, and then fire a punch over the shoulder, rotating their fist out, and it would still land even when the guard was up. Like, there was still space to creep in. Uh, uppercuts could get through. This one was so big, it's not just that if you had your gloves up, people couldn't squeeze through. It was that your glove can't, even if I'm up here, uh, a previous glove could squeeze it through the middle and land an uppercut. The new glove seemed so big that they were just getting obstructed along the way, like you saw in Zach Mikasa, he did a lot of body work. Zach McClos is not really a body technician, man. Like he goes to the body. That dude's a headhunter, you know? He likes to attack the head. And in previous glory bouts, that's been a big key to his success. For example, the Pat Berry bout. So to me, you're changing the way a guy is able to land offense. There's a problem there. And maybe it's just my imagination and and and, and someone can correct me about the dimensions here. But I think there's a 12 ounce when they're supposed to be 10 ounce. Um And so the gloves are just too big. They're just too big. They need to go back to a smaller glove. And look, I'm pretty sure Haibusa makes 10-ounce gloves. Uh, Let me just Google that to be sure. 10-ounce gloves. Yeah, of course they do. So maybe it's the stitching on them? I don't know. Let's see, 12-ounce? Yeah, they make the 12-ounce too. Let's see. Yeah. The ones they were using for Gloria apparently are the twelve ounces. They're huge, man. They're totally huge. They're just way, way too big. yeah. And I think the I think the Leone ones were ten. So maybe that's the issue. But in any case, it needs to be it needs to be examined because it's not just what you can. It's not just what someone can block, and it was easy to parry too, because the width on them were a little bit bigger. Like they were parrying way outside. You know, usually when you parry, it's right, it's kind of in front. You don't want to parry too far off an extension. I mean, you can, but you know, typical parries are in tight, right? Um, it, it didn't seem that way at all. It was just bizarre, man. It was bizarre. Like when when Zach Mikasa's best punches are his body work, something's wrong, you know, or, or someone has nutso defense. And I thought Cavalari had very good defense. But not not like that, you know. Not like that. It, yeah, it's just crazy, man. Usually, dude, you go to a glory show. I'm telling you again, I am not on their payroll. I uh, haven't been for almost a full year, uh, or no, not that long, but like a good six months, seven months, something like that. No longer than that, almost nine months. Dude, people get sparked up at those shows, <laughs> and I don't mean marijuana. People get people get lit on fire at those shows, man. Um, and it just feels like once they switched to the 12 ounce Hayabusa's, something kind of switched. All right, let's do some true or false. True or false? Gustafson gets punished for slandering the Reebok deal. False. John Jones never gets his belt back. That's false. Verdum and Kane fight for a third time. False. Mark Hunt retires in Australia. You mean like in his next fight? I don't know about that. Conor McGregor win or lose against Aldo, moves up to lightweight, and fights for the title there within two years. False. Sage Northcutt becomes a top 10 fighter in the division. True. Keep an eye on that kid. Viacom drops Bellator. Are y'all high? (laughs) Are y'all high? False. Ben Askren signs with the UFC within two years. I'll say false, but you know what's kind of a pity? Um it's a shame that Askren's not I mean, it's a shame Askren's not in the UFC, number one. But if you can't be in UFC, it's also a shame he's not in Bellator. Because I don't think that Remney really knew how to use him all that well. Coker would know how to use him very well. Because because cause Askren's got real talent and has got a big mouth, man. And Coker can Coker really knows how to get out of the way of oversized personalities like that. Uh, Henry Cejudo fights in Las Vegas a few times. True. Ronda Rousey KOs Holly Holm standing. No, false. Okay. A net positive for Diaz. This is an interesting question. While we all agree that what happened to him is a travesty, do you think it just adds to the mystique of Nick Diaz? It seems like no matter what the circumstances, his persona, the diehard fan base, somehow provide opportunity. We see him get the GSP fight and also the fight with Anderson Silva when it's arguable that he even deserves to be in that position. Is it possible that this just adds to his legend and he's somehow able to capitalize on all the attention? Yeah. I still wouldn't call that a net positive, right? Because, uh, there was an article in the Huffington post by her name is Amy D'Artashian, who I think is Armenian. Um, who argued that he has a great chance in court. But what one scenario could be is that the judge essentially says um, the ruling by the state agency is over the limits, but go back and, and have another hearing. Well, if they do that, they can just say third offense on our books is three years. That is still pretty close to effective retirement. It's not the same thing as five years, but like, Three years is bad. That's a long time, man. That's not much better. That's not much better for anybody. So, like, I don't call this a net win for Nick Diaz at all. That's the first problem. This, the next problem, I guess I would say, is that... or not next problem, but, I mean, to answer your question. Yes, I do think there's a lot of benefit to Nick Diaz in this particular case because he has been a number of things for fighters. He has been... um a cause for celebration in terms of how good he is. He has been in some of MMA's more notable fights where other fighters, remember I interviewed Liam McGeary and I was like, which, which fighters do you like? And he was like the Diaz brothers. You know, I really like the way those guys scrap. Like he is, they they are examples of um, the highest art form. People love their attitude. They're like, they love the originality of who they are. And even when it's the better and worst parts of their personalities, there's that as well. But I think what you might see here is, and it depends on what happens in court. But I think what you might see here is, you know, uh, I don't know if they're going to create any rule like the Nick Diaz rule, but what you might find is that Nick Diaz challenging the athletic commission forces them for all fighters going forward to, to much more strictly adhere to um, their own rules and maybe make slightly more sensible judgments about uh, punishments in hearings because this has been a public disaster for them if he challenges them in court and has success it'll be a judge essentially publicly censuring them right that is terrible for them and they want to avoid that and it'll be it'll be nick diaz who forced that on them you know giving back to fighters giving back to the sport which is what i think that is so to me this is one of the things that sort of look amazing about it all right it's like it's like, oh, Nick Diaz, you know, has popped positive three times in the state and he has brought this on himself. And I'm like, Nick Diaz is a fighter advocate in a sport where no one has one. Because what have I said before? Somebody, when they want to make a fighter's union, for example, is going to have to fall on their sword. He, <laughs> you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet here. Um There's going to be some bodies in the wake to make a fighter's union happen. Now, Nick is carrying on about his own personal interests, and he's doing it on the back of a personal habit. But what he's doing is essentially saying, I'm not breaking any rules. You're not proving I'm breaking any rules, and you're also showing to be capricious and arbitrary and vindictive in the course of fighter punishment. Moreover, you're also revealing that this is not a hearing. This is a guilty hearing. We're just just determining ranges of guilt here. He is, by his own um, accord, because he doesn't have to go get an attorney, he is helping, I think, in the future, other fighters enjoy at least a little more consideration and a little more fairness by showing and demonstrating that this athletic commission is so terribly unfair to him. And really, the entire process of how fighters are treated is terribly unfair. The guy is a fighter advocate. He's a fighter advocate. He's caring about himself. Yes, but in the course of doing so, it will have ramifications for everybody. Assuming it has, a, it works out in court, and that attorney seems to think that he has a really good case and, and will. So, I really think that should be considered in the legacy of Nick Diaz, an excellent fighter, an original personality, a complicated guy, a very flawed guy. Right? He got plenty of flaws. You know, don't forget he had a DUI reason not too recently, too. Right? The guy, the guy's got some problems, but he also, I think, because he is complicated because he is both a lot of good and some bad, but because he is so original as a, as a, as a person, um, I just feel like people respond to that authenticity. And I feel like what he's doing now is not just helping himself to some extent, but will have some help for fighters, all of whom compete in the state of Nevada. He is forcing the commission um, process to be revealed to a larger public, and he is forcing their arbitrariness and their vindictiveness against him for improper regulation and improper interpretation regulation um, into the public. So there's some visibility about this because you talk about this Vitor Belfort thing, right? Like what is being alleged in that article is very serious, but is it really going to get out into ESPN? Are they going to talk about it? Is, is Cat Williams and Snoop Dogg and Floyd Mayweather going to talk about it? Is it going to get onto the crawl on ESPN? Is Ronda Rousey going to talk about it? You know, probably not, probably not. But Nick Diaz in this particular case um, is able to, is able to bring the light of scrutiny onto something that is typically a little more hidden, and that consequence can then ha- peel back onto um, the rest of the fighting fam- the the fighting roster so so to me you know i mean hero might be a strong word, but um, he is not he might be acting in self interest but that 's often the case in these landmark court cases where someone acts on upon themselves, but it has ramifications for everybody. Um, because someone is a representative of basically a class of certain people. And Nick Diaz is a fighter, and a fighter licensed in Nevada, and he had, therefore he represents a class of fighters, or a group of them anyway. And as a consequence, what affects him affects all of them, if he has his way in court. Let's go to Twitter here real quick, because I've kind of ignored it. Uh, what are your thoughts on Will Brooks' tweets during and after the Dynamite event? Um yeah, we had him on the uh, uh, Sirius XM Fire Fight Club. I think he feels okay about it. His basic point is that, look, you know, you see these new guys coming in like Kimbo, and no, no disrespect to Kimbo, he likes Kimbo and Tito Ortiz, and he likes to mention it quite quite matter-of-factly. He likes these guys, it's not against them. He would just like to see some of the older guys who have been in, in Bellator longer, like himself, uh, get a little more attention, which I understand. And again, closed mouth, don't get fed, squeaky wheel gets the grease. But I think if Dynamite shows anything, it's that Bellator's not ready for that yet. Like, this next Tedpole event in November, I don't know how it's going to do. I'm not sure if it's on a Friday or a Saturday night, but I can't imagine it's going to do all that awesome. Because um, there's just not a lot of big names on it. Like, all these guys are like, why am I not on the main card? Well, because you're not good for business. I'm not saying that Will's not exactly, but, you know, Patricio Freire is headlining that show. That's risky, man. They're giving him what he wants, but, man, that's risky. And I think they're giving it to him because they want to keep Patrício Freire happy, right? He has asked, "I want a headline on a big show." He's got out there and he's publicly demanded it, and good for him. He will, but we'll see how those ratings look. So, it says, "Do you believe UFC have more positive drug tests like Vitor's from UFC 152 revealed years after the fight?" Well, it's not a positive drug test; it's a drug test that shows uh, extreme, high, uh, very high levels of free testosterone, two and a half times the ad in the normal amount still within a technical normal range, but high enough that it could disqualify him from competition. So it's not a positive drug test as such. And the second, then, but to answer it, do I think that they've had more of those? I have no idea. But certainly you can say as a consequence of Gross's publication, and by the way, that's what real journalism looks like. As a consequence of that publication, they're now open to scrutiny about it. That's what they have opened the doors to. And then not, not responding to the article, I think, is also, at least not yet, is... Um, I don't know. Problematic. Uh, let's see. How well would Gechi Brooks, and McGeary do in the UFC in their respective divisions? Definitely top 15 or 10? Brooks, yes. McGeary, I don't know. Gechi, probably. If you ran the UFC, would you put Diaz in fights outside of Nevada to show your disapproval of, of the decision? Well, I would, but... <laughs> That's the reason why I don't run the UFC. But it's interesting that he brought that up because, remember, we always say, well, if if Nevada suspends you, New Jersey will just simply honor that suspension or Ohio will honor that suspension and so forth. But they're not obligated to, you know. Now, it's a huge can of worms that they would open, right, because then the ever-so-petty and vindictive Nevada Athletic Commission could say, well, New Jersey, you suspended someone, But you didn't honor our Nick Diaz suspension, so we're not going to honor yours. Uh, And that could make the whole thing disintegrate. I would imagine that the Association of Boxing Commissions would be encouraging everyone to honor that. So I find the idea that that as egregious as this is, it's still part of a system where they all have mutual benefit and contribution to because it works if you uphold those norms. Once you upend those norms, you get into some really sketchy territory. About the the federalness of it, even though it's regulated state by state, but that federal feel to it disintegrates if you begin to do that. And I think that's probably a uh, the nuclear option that they don't want to have to take up. They're probably just happy to be like, eh, "We'll respect the Nevada um, suspension," even though we, you know, we may have different feelings about it, or maybe they share them. I don't know. Who are you picking in Calderwood versus Van Zant? So remember, everyone being all you know, uptight about, well, Van Zant's getting this easy fight against Alex Chambers. Well, here you go. Here you go. Is this one easy? No, of course not. Uh, And I like Van Zant to win. I just think Calderwood is very, very good. And I think Van Zant makes a lot of mistakes. But I just find Van Zant's pressure to be way too much for Calderwood to handle. But we'll see. Um, what is the state of the lawsuits against the UFC and what effect are they having? Um, They're not having any effect yet because nothing's been decided, but if you want to get the state of them, follow Paul gift on Twitter. He's a writer for bloody elbow. He's an attorney who specializes in, um, I think some of the economics behind antitrust, but I believe that like they tried to stay discovery and the motion was denied. So that doesn't mean there will be discovery but that means that the first roadblock that the UFC tried to put up to it was not um, the court struck down. So we'll see. Uh, if Scott Coker decided to have a UFC 194 card, which five main I'm not answering this question. True or false, UFC 193 will break 192 record of 55,000. I'll just say true. How is Matt Brown ranked five, but has never beaten anyone in the top 15? Rankings, bro. How different would, he, would we be reacting if UFC told Johnny Bones about Vitro Belfort's testosterone use and he fought and kept it hush? I think we'd react with much less concern because there wouldn't be any complicating factor there. The complicating factor is that he wasn't told, allegedly. Jones says Jones says he wasn't. Um, and therefore, that's where that, according to McGrawkin, the potential for that lawsuit opens up. But if he was told and to fought anyway, it would be like, I don't care. Remember, it's not clear they broke any commission rule. Right? Because no commission, the commission that was sanctioning it says, we only test for this at the promoter's behest. And if they don't test for it, it's complicated. Now, you could say, why is a promoter encouraging and then overseeing testosterone use? Now, that's no longer the case, obviously, because TRT got banned. But this is, you know, these are the complicating factors you run into with self regulation. Um, Let's see. When the Fedor event is in Japan and a one-off unregulated promotion, is it really MMA or rather an MMA pro wrestling hybrid? I don't know. Let's see what's on it. Uh, I am tired of the NAC debacle and TRT Bull S. What 2015 fight, in your opinion, will save the day and recharge me as a fan? Aldo McGregor. Or Rockhold and Weidman. Ooh, boy. Uh, Why do you find ways to bring up and troll RG3 even when he is a third stringer and with no impact on the team? Well, you would say he has no impact on the team, but you don't live in Washington, D.C., where simply having RG3 on the roster still to this day serves as an enormous, enormous uh, distraction. And you know what happens tomorrow night. Kirk Cousins and the Skins play the New York Giants, I believe, in the Meadowlands, if I'm not mistaken uh and last time he was there he threw four interceptions in one quarter or one half anyway and it was a disaster and if that happens and rg3 still on the roster even being third string and colt mccoy might come in people are gonna say here in dc that he should be on it and by the way if you're not following this because you're not from dc you know, DC is a, is a historically uh, has a has a significant African American population. Having a black quarterback being replaced by a white one, there were some there were some I don't know racial tensions is the right word, but there were some African American fans who, you know, had looked to RG three as something of, um, you know, a sign of I don't know of progress or of pride or some combination between the two, and then having him replaced. They, you know, it hurt, it hurt and it stung. And uh, even then, aside from that, there are still some that don't view Cousins as a legitimate quarterback. So, like, there's still a lot of tension about, about on a very, on a number of fronts about Cousins starting. Uh, let's see. Because Jones was unaware of Belfort's test and TRT levels, could he potentially sue UFC for hiding the test? According to McGrocken, I think that that opportunity is available to him, although um, I find the idea of him doing that to be, you know, zero. you think something will happen as a consequence of the Belfort drug test? I don't know what. I don't know what. Because they've already pivoted away from TRT use is banned, and they're now using USADA. Like, I don't know what could reasonably happen at this point. All right. With that said, we got to go. So do me a favor. Give it a thumbs up. Look at that busted-ass knuckles. Um, Share this whenever you see it. Uh, I appreciate it. We're all... Of course, on iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. I will get this up on that uh, as soon as possible. It's a nice day in Washington, D.C. Pope will be in the neighborhood in like a few hours. It's going to be madness here. I might have to go drink a beer. Uh, MMA beat tomorrow. I will see all of you guys then. And thank you so much for watching. And until next time, stay frosty.